Ladies and gentlemen, here we are together again. This is Alex Afondi, the Acquisition Entrepreneur. It is such a pleasure to have you with me. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of having the Chief Executive Officer of Energy Distribution Partners, Mr. Thomas Knopf. Mr. Thomas Knopf has been in business for uh, three to four decades. He brings 30 plus years of executive operations and transactional experience in his industry which also could tie very much to what you're doing because it's all about deal-making and transaction completion. After beginning his career at uh, Feral Gas, where he helped integrate the $400 million leveraged buyout of Buckeye Gas products, Mr. Knopf co-founded Propane Continental and continued on with his career to make a total of 79 acquisitions. Uh, he's got articles and a lot of publications, uh, so you can, certainly look, look, you can certainly look that up online. But for today's purpose, uh, I'd like to welcome you, Mr. Anoff. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Most certainly. So I um, want to ask you, Mr. Anoff, Having done 79 acquisitions, obviously this has become a way of life for you when it comes to business and, and the life of business and the business of life. Can you tell us about your experience overall? Well, the, uh, the experience of buying businesses is, uh, is a personal one. Uh, you, you're, uh, you have to have expertise not only in the, uh, in the area of, of your, of your industry-specific knowledge, and finance, but uh, 80% of the uh, of what makes an acquisition work is the human interaction between between the buyer and the seller. So you become a psychologist and a, a marriage counselor sometimes, and uh, uh, a counselor of of all kinds. I I described the process to a, I was in a, a business meeting with a a. a an industry player in my industry in Paris one time, and I was explaining the process that we went through to buy a family-owned business. And he said, "You have to be a priest," and that's exactly that's exactly right. You, uh, when, a, when an entrepreneur that has built a business from scratch sells it because he's ready to retire, he enters a process in which he's sort of a deer caught in the headlights. He's normally not prepared for the psychological ups and downs he's going to experience. And for the amount of time and uh, rather torturous work involved in building a building a successful product, a, a transaction. Transaction. And you've got yeah, you've got to usher him through that process. He's, he's not able to, to to do it by himself, and um, that uh, that requires, I think, uh, among other things, a sincere desire to. Get to know people and to like people because that's what makes the, the you have to become the friends of these of these people over the 90 to 120 or longer uh, day period uh, to get the transaction closed. And uh, if you don't like working with people, well, it's very hard to be successful. No doubt. So, um, in terms of that process and essentially becoming their friend. How do you find that fine line between, you know, a friend, a priest, if you will, and a negotiator? Because you obviously want the best deal for your investors as well. You have to start with where you know your financial brackets have to be. If you know your industry well and you know what the valuation, valuation metrics are, 
in the industry and uh, what you have to buy the business at in order to be able to achieve the returns uh, that you want to that you want to achieve. Then I the way I do it is I I assume right from the start that I'm probably not going to get a bargain. As a matter of fact, I tell the seller. Uh, I'm not looking for a bargain. I'm not looking for a discount. I w I'm very happy to pay a full market price. Uh, what I want to do is position myself as the problem solver for the nuanced uh, process that you have to go through, Mr. Seller, and help you achieve the outcomes that, you're, that you need to achieve uh, in connection with the transaction. And the way I have to start doing that is to understand what those outcomes are. And I try to sit on his side of the desk with him and learn learn how the world looks from his viewpoint and understand how to mold myself into being a solution to his problems. Interesting. So you're totally willing to, to pay full price for these businesses. Um, two questions come to mind. First off, how do you find these deals? How did you well, back in the day? Keep in mind, I'm, I'm farming my deals out of, an, out of a distinct industry silo. So I attend industry conferences. I'm at, I'm at one as I speak. Uh, we have a fairly sophisticated marketing program, uh, an outreach program of uh, snail mail, email, and advertising and uh, industry publications. Um, we also work what I call the trade ally market. In other words, there's, uh, there are vendors that sell to the industry and that, I, that I'm targeting. Okay. And I, I go out of my way to, uh, to establish relationships with those vendors because a lot of vendors to family-owned businesses are trusted uh, advisors when it comes to uh, life-changing events like a, a transition of the business. They might turn to the vendor and say, who could I, who do you know that I could, I could have approach me on, uh, on my business? I'm ready to retire. So you want to be positioned with them. And, of course, there's investment banks and business brokers that specialize in in uh, whatever industry cycle you're interested in, there will, there will be uh, uh, brokers and bankers that, that specialize in them, and there it's very much worthwhile to get to know them. Incredible, and that's basically a part of the, the deal flow, if you will. Do you ever come across a situation where you have more deals than you can handle? Um, that's a good problem to have, and we try to make that happen all the time, and yes, we do. Uh, I have, I have now a, a corporate development staff that is uh, um, fairly sophisticated, and uh, I, I work with them in order to, uh, to uh, get engagement or uh, transactions started and to process them. Uh, a year ago, about 14 months ago, we had five deals under letter of intent at the same time, and that was uh, quite hectic. It took about uh, six months to get them all closed, but we got them all closed, and it was a very, uh, very successful period for us. Uh, that ushers in a period of acquisition integration. That's a whole, a whole other topic uh, of uh, taking new populations of employees and and helping uh, stabilize, uh, stabilize their workday and and uh, bring them into uh, a new company in a productive way. No doubt. Uh, it's a challenge. It's even a greater challenge when you do that number uh, all at once. Right. Do you typically see a and I and I'm, I ask this because I understand this is a, a pretty emotional time for employees. You know, I've been through an acquisition. Um, even dealing with my with my coworkers at the time wasn't all that pleasant. So, 
in, in your experience, what do you do to, to mitigate, or I should say, you know, soften the blow, if you will? I think the most important thing is to be uh, upfront and honest and open kimono right from day one. And what I learned the hard way not to do is not to do what your, your instincts really tell you to do, and that's to stand in front of the employees and say, everything's going to stay the same, there won't be any changes because that's, it's not possible for that to be true. And I found that the best thing to say is that, uh, listen, I need you as much or more than the previous owner needed you. Uh, there is no plan to, to reduce employment uh, at all, if that's the truth, and in our case it almost always is. Uh, but I'm here to tell you that uh, there are going to be lots of exciting changes. Because that's the, there are going to be changes, and to say it, to say it any other way will come back to haunt you. Yeah. And uh, that's how we get started. Yeah. Actually, this was good advice for me because on my first acquisition, which I plan to close at the, at the end of the month, I was planning to have that first conversation and say, business as usual. Have a good day, guys. But in, in reality, there, there were going to be changes. I just figured I would emerge them into the changes. So... This was good advice for me personally. I think the other thing that is important to do in the early days is, is if, if you're in a position to do it, spend time with each of the employees and get to know them, get to know their families. If you have, if you have materials uh, uh, on uh, new benefit programs or uh, descriptions of your, of your company or, or your strategy or how you see the future, have those done in uh, professional, high-quality printed form so that they can take those materials home and put them on the coffee table and let the rest of the family uh, participate in understanding who the new owner is. And uh, that'll go a long way toward uh, helping cement employees that really didn't ask for this kind of a major upheaval in their lives. Sure. You need to, to, bring, them on, to bring them around to, uh, to feeling comfortable with the, with the, uh, with the new reality. And sometimes you have to go back a few weeks later and go through that process again because they'll be in shock, some level of shock, uh, the first time you go. You go through the process of getting to know. Them. Absolutely, this is this is people's livelihood. Um, question: Imagine you're, imagine yourself 30, 40 years ago when you started acquiring and acquiring business because businesses because my my audience is is in that position right now. What would be the first thing you would do? Um, well, I think uh, if, if you don't have an industry already targeted, uh, if it's not practical to target a specific industry, then I, I recommend classifying businesses into various uh, categories and at least targeting a category so that you can start to familiarize yourself with metrics that pertain to a particular industry. So for example, you might want uh, businesses that all have recurring revenue. You might be interested in a food business, some kind of, something in the food industry, or uh, in the uh, industrial sector. Uh, target it in so that you can start making some generalizations about the various targets uh, that you look at and, uh, and have something to, some basis upon which to make comparisons. You'll become a more knowledgeable buyer. That would be, the, I think, the, that level of research would be the, the first step that I would take. Okay. And you might, you might get started doing that by looking at, looking at advertisements for businesses and putting them into various categories and then dig in a little deeper. 
Thank you for that. So picking a category or picking an industry, and that's actually one of the more uh, frequent question questions. Um, some 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 of the members um, that listen to me uh, in this podcast, they want to consolidate an industry, right? So whether it's um, uh, automotive uh, or food or whatever the case, my education. Um, so that that is actually a, a question that comes up quite often. In terms of my question, my other question, in terms of assembling the board, uh, which I've un- I understand you have done that at, at least once in your career. How do you go about that? Well, in my case, because uh, <clears throat> I'm raising capital from professional investors in order to uh, to close my acquisitions uh, for. Uh, that almost is a self-solving problem because once I, once I have the uh, uh, a deal with an investor, that investor wants a board seat or maybe several board seats. And my current company, for example, I have uh, two lead investors and 42 limited investors. The two lead investors each have board seats, and the board is comprised of uh, three three uh, board members from one investor, two from the other, plus myself and an independent. And uh, the the, the first-in investor, and I might, in this case, with the most money in, uh, weighs heavily on choosing the independent. So I have very little to say about who the board is going to be, except for the fact that I can turn down the investment to begin with and say no in that fashion. Sure. So, so if you back your question up just one step into selecting the investors, then clearly you want to, you want to uh, again, the human, the human element of the con, of the. Uh, of the, uh, uh, of the of the contact really comes into play. You have to know that you have chemistry with someone. You're going to be working with these people for a number of years. Uh, you have to know that they'll they will know how deeply to insert themselves in your processes and when to pull back and how to stay out of your way but still add value and, and make sure they see the world in the same way that uh, that you see it. And I again I've learned that I uh, learned how to do that by by trial and error and by doing it wrong occasionally. I've had investors that uh, simply didn't know where the line was and where their involvement needed to stop. And uh, then you have to you have to find a way to get that investor out because it might destroy the business. No doubt. Um, so <clears throat> assume I'm a 22-year-old um, college graduate and I'm, I'm ready to conquer the world and, and establish a multi-million dollar company with the help of professional investors, how do I find these investors? How do I reach out to them? Any tips on that? Well, I think it's important to have a, uh, a coherent uh, strategy document in the form of a business plan. Learn how to write a business plan or get someone to write one for you with uh, financial projections, uh, with assumptions that make sense. Uh, without that document, I can't, I can't have raised any money, and as, and as a matter of fact, uh, because I I had a document that was that was pretty solid, uh, it made it made the, the fundraising process much easier. But I must say, on my first my first company in 1991, my partner and I made over 80 presentations before we figured out how how to really gain traction and do it correctly. Okay. And then uh, it got, it got a lot when we had. 80 presentations of learning under our belt, it got a lot easier. But there was some pretty pretty uncomfortable moments in those first 80. Right. Uh, so you've got to learn, you've got to learn what's important to the investor class that you're, 
going for and understand how to structure your opportunity in terms of uh, uh, outcomes that make sense to that investor, just as you have to put your uh, strategic intent in the form of solutions to the seller's problem. Okay. You're the orchestra leader. You've got an orchestra here that you've got a, you're the band leader. You've got, you've got uh, a seller and his contingencies and you've got investors and their contingencies. And you're the man in the middle making it all happen. That's why they use a complicated French word like entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got to you've got to direct all the action and make everyone happy. No doubt. Um, in today's age, would these investors be angel investors or high net worth individuals that that are accredited? Um, where would your attention be today if you were to do this all over again? If you're if you're if we're staying with your example of a twenty-two year old right out of college, it's probably going to be angel investors because a professional investor investor community is going to require some kind of a track record. In my case, I had worked for a major company in the field in which I wanted to do acquisitions and establish my track record there. So that when I came out of that company, uh, the knowledge of the industry and how to run the businesses I wanted to buy and how to acquire them uh, were uh, all in, in seen in, as being in my head. And I had the business plan that I had offered uh, to prove it. The good news uh, today is that there's more money available uh, looking for looking for uh, something to invest in in the private capital markets. Absolutely. Ever, ever before in history. Uh, the good, that's the good news. The bad news is for your 22-year-old recent graduate, it's going to be hard to tap into that money until he has a track record. And the, probably the track record is going to be best gained with an angel or friends and family investor. No doubt. Yeah, one of the one of the strategies strategies I do recommend is you know <clears throat> dig really dig really deep to find a you know hundred percent sales financing deal. You know that's that's one deal. Now you have some cash flow, some experience, and then and then going after some big fish. The seller financing is the absolute best because. Then the seller becomes your angel investor. He is your investor. Now you, uh, he's the bank. He's the bank or the investor, and you're the the owner or the entrepreneur. Right. And uh, and he, you can't have a more intimate uh, uh, counterparty than a person that used to own the business. And then in a few, uh, with a few years of success under your belt, you'll have the track record you need to go to a more professional level of capital if you if you want to. Right. And then and then investors are. In this case, professional investors are paying closer attention to you. Um, exactly. What I found interesting with friends and family is the uh, unrealistic expectations. Someone puts in, you know, say ten thousand dollars, but they're expecting seventy uh, percent of the business. <laughs> and uh, that that's very common, <laughs> and that's very common not just in friends and family. I got to tell you, that's that's uh, for anyone without professional investment experience. Uh, uh, having uh, not understanding the metrics of of what investment returns are all about can create problems, and it can create problems for the entrepreneur as well. Uh, when I've raised when I have raised professional capital for for a major acquisition effort, you have to accept the fact that you're going to have the stock for whatever investment you're writing a check for yourself. That's going to have a rateable relationship. With with the rest of the investment. So if, if someone is putting a hundred million dollars in and you're putting a million and you're going to have one one hundredth of the company from the start, unless you've negotiated 
an additional management pool and management incentive pool that you can invest into in your company. And that's very common in private equity and private equity funded transactions. It could be between 10 and 20% of the common equity that's available for attracting and compensating a good management team. But uh, as an entrepreneur, the idea, having the idea doesn't get you 90% of the company. Uh, just as uh, investing $10,000 because it's the first money in doesn't get an angel investor or a friends and family investor 90% of a, of a billion-dollar company in the future. Right. In terms of the entrepreneur with the brilliant idea to acquire a business, uh, run it the way it is or expand it, what's the sweet spot in your opinion in terms of ownership? Where should an entrepreneur be? And say in the first acquisition, straight out of college, not a whole lot of experience. You mean what percentage should he own? Yes. Well, um, if, the, if, you've got a, if you've got a really good, good opportunity to to do seller financing, you can you can end up over time owning the entire business. Sure, and that, that would be that would be ideal. Uh, if you uh, if you own if you're bringing in another investor to help you buy a business with or without uh, some seller financing, uh, clearly if you can maintain 51 percent and have and have control over the decision making process, uh, that's the best position to be in. If you can't do that. If you have to bring in a, an amount of money that prohibits you from having 51% because you just can't afford it, then look for uh, minority shareholder rights. Have your lawyer help you with minority shareholder right concepts in the uh, in the contract in the investment contract with your investor. Okay. So so for things like major major uh, uh, decisions that have to be made with regard to maybe selling the company or uh, bringing in another partner or performing yet another acquisition uh, that uh, you have the right to, uh, to veto uh, uh, some of those kinds of actions even without a 51%. Okay. So, so similar to, to drag along rights? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, would you recommend finding the deal then finding the money? I'm sorry, I lost you there for a moment. That's uh, okay. It so- sounds there's a, sounds like there's a, a child in the in the background. Yeah. But uh, would you recommend finding the deal before finding the money, or finding the money then finding the deal? I think that if you find a financial partner that believes in you and is willing to fund your strategy, and as someone that you can bounce things off of as you go out into the world and. Uh, and start to develop opportunities. I think uh, I think it's better to have the money first. Okay. So money first. We spoke earlier before we started recording about um, insurance companies as investors. What do they look for, and how would you reach out to them? Well, that's a big question. I think that it depends on the, uh, the, the. It so happens that an insurance company was my first investor back in the nineties. Incredible. That was, because, that was because the insurance company in question had an in-house venture capital and private equity uh, effort. They, as a matter of fact, they had 90 portfolio companies, uh, companies that they had sometimes founded, sometimes bought them in, in mid-stage, and sometimes bought them in late-stage. Very few insurance companies today have in-house private equity efforts in that fashion. 
what an insurance company typically wants to invest in today is a, a form of preferred preferred stock with a guaranteed return and low involvement at the board level on their foot. You're going to have to be an established company in order to attract that kind of capital. That's not pure bottom of the balance sheet equity. Pure balance sheet, bottom of the balance sheet equity is today rare from an insurance company. So uh, my company now, uh, we are, we have about 200 million in sales and our 500 employees. Mm -hmm. We're in a position to attract capital uh, of that nature, but we weren't in a position to attract uh, capital of that nature when we started eight years ago. Okay. So we we attracted straight straight equity from uh, uh, family offices, high net worth individuals, and small private equity. Okay. That that so so this this is the the big league um, big league play if you will insurance companies so that it, not, nothing that a an entrepreneur a beginning entrepreneur should think about. I, I agree. I think that would be very rare. Okay. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I I today and and I have had some experience, but I don't even know who to reach out to. So, um, I I understand your point there. Um, industries that you believe today, just thinking of the macro picture, industries that you believe today are thriving. Can you give us some ideas? Well, I, again, I think it looks for, uh, you need to look for an industry that fits the lifestyle that you want to live, uh, operating the industry. For example, with what I do, uh, if you don't like to travel, then you wouldn't want to be in my business because in order to consolidate propane companies, by definition, are going to be covering a wide geography. Our business is stretched from California to New York. Mm. So uh, I'm on the road all the time. Um, if you have a, a penchant for a, a service business, for example, if you if you think you understand the customer service ethic extremely well and uh, can excel at customer service, there's a lot of money looking for uh, opportunities uh, in businesses that can be enhanced with excellence and customer service today. Okay. And a lot of young entrepreneurs think that think that they're good at that, and some of them are. And that's appealing to them because it, it doesn't take uh, any particular amount of capital to be good at the service aspect of, uh, of taking care of people. You might have to, you, it doesn't mean you can do without capital. You still have to have capital to buy the business. But adding the, uh, adding the value of, of good customer service to something that can be done with determination rather than just with capital. No doubt. What I find interesting is, uh, you know, some service businesses are, are rather pretty inexpensive to start, um, not just acquire, but start such as uh, HVAC industry, the heating and air conditioning. Uh, if you're able to somehow get a license, some states allow it, uh, where you can emerge yourself into a license. Um, yeah and then hire the right talent, that's a $20,000 investment for a pretty profitable business, as long as the service, to your point, is on point. Yes, and that's an industry that's had uh, consolidation activity uh, before, and uh, in some cases uh, successfully, and in some cases not so successful. Okay. And as a matter of fact, in that industry, I think I think if you research it, you'd find that uh, the successful efforts were at the smaller end of the industry. Uh, entrepreneurs buying smaller companies and operating them successfully were more successful than there was one major effort to consolidate multi-city uh, HVAC companies. Uh, 
that uh, that didn't work out at all. And the reason that it didn't work out is is the corporate acquirers were trying to manage the uh, the business from from the corporate office. And when they acquired a uh, a, a big HVAC uh, operator, say for example in Los Angeles, uh-huh. uh, the the uh, the heart and soul of the business went away. At, at the closing, because the entrepreneur was uh, was re- was made into a rich man and retired, and now the corporation owns uh, the customer service business um, from uh, a thousand miles away, and there's no uh, no real oomph there to uh, to really drive the business and take care of the customers. If you can solve that riddle, you can make it work. But the easiest way to solve it is to buy uh, buy a smaller company that you're going to work in yourself. Okay. Okay. So you did mention in 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 your particular experience, you work with companies throughout the country. How do you manage companies that are not in your geography? Well, we have a uh, and our, our particular business is very operationally oriented. Customer service is a big factor, but it's not the only factor. Uh, the, the propane gas business is a little bit like Package Express. It's a little bit like a UPS uh, company. Uh, in other words, you have to have middle managers and executives that have expertise at uh, rolling stock operations, truck operations, routing and scheduling, and uh, and putting sort of practical machinery in place to make the business function as it moves through the seasons with customer service on on the top of it. And uh, I have I have uh, I've been in the industry enough years that I know where to. Uh, recruit that kind of a management team, and it's a it's a pyramidic management structure. It's very much like a military operation with with customer service added, you might say. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, we've also perfected uh, to uh, to a, a science with a high degree of art uh, to have a general manager at each of our locations that has a great deal of authority delegated to him in order to to operate the business and make it successful and achieve plan. He also participates, he or she actually also participates in creating the plan, creating the budget, and is held strictly accountable for the results. If you're in a, if you're in a business like that with multiple locations, you have to live with the fact that once again, you're dealing with human beings. So even if you, if you were lucky enough to start off with 20 human beings that were perfect performers, uh, people, uh, become depressed, they have emotional problems, they sure. become alcoholics, they get divorced. People are not constant. And so you're going to be managing on the margins to help the, uh, the least best employees get better. Mm-hmm. And that, that becomes the job. Right. You, you're as fast as your slowest link, right? That's exactly right. Um, more of a... More of a Personal question: How involved are you still in the company? Um, you've been in this industry for a long time. Are you still day in and day out operating the company? Um, very much so. I spend a lot of my time with with our investors, working with our board on strategy. Uh, I spend a lot of time with the head of corporate development, uh, working with acquisition candidates, and uh, I've got a, a living, breathing management team. We had the unfortunate experience within the last year of having a young chief operating officer die suddenly without warning. I'm sorry so to hear. I had to replace uh, the chief operating officer and I spent time traveling the field with the chief operating officer uh, uh, to 
to make sure we understand uh, the company together and share the same vision. Uh, and I'm very much involved on a day-to-day basis. And I, and I love every moment of it. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, in 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 terms of the uh, that do you, do you plan? I mean, you you've consolidated businesses. Have you ever sold any of them? You know, a, a unit that wasn't so hot, if you will. We've never sold off, and two two of my both of my predecessor companies that I founded uh, reached the point where they were sold, but we have never sold off an individual uh, location from the combine. Uh, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. There are occasions when it should be done. But if you're going to do it, you have to address uh, the fact that it's going to be pretty disruptive to, to the other uh, employees. Uh, they're going to wonder if the same thing can happen to them. Sure. So you, have to, you just have to lay the groundwork to do it. We've never done it, but there are certainly times when it should be done. Thank you for that. Um, the due diligence process, something you've had to learn on your own before the re- before recording, we talked about it back in the day in the 90s, you used to go to the library to, to, to get that education. Today, things are a little different. What are the main things you would look at in a business, small, big, whether it's a hair salon or a multi-million dollar business? What are you looking for specifically? I learned from the uh, from an old accountant that I dealt with in one of my first acquisitions. Uh, he, he used some language that I that I uh, have always used since then. It's when I go in to do the due diligence is to ask for the books of original entry. Now the books of original entry back when, when uh, this accountant uh, was saying it and what he meant was paper books, uh, big green binders with when a sale is made, <laughs> where do you go right down the sale? Okay. Today, it's going to be computerized. So your right. question becomes, what you want to do is you, want to, is you want to verify the actual sales that take place and get to the amount of cash that the business produces, the EBITDA that the business produces. In order to get there and make sure you're headed in the right direction, you still want the books of original entry. So your question is to the, to the seller, when a sale is made, where is it recorded? And wherever it's recorded, that's the program that you want to print out on for at least three years going back, and that's where your work begins. So, and, uh, and so what you're looking for, the end, the end result needs to be what I call, what are the EBITDA connectors? In other words, what are the practices and products and procedures that make inside that business, that make those numbers be what they are? Because when you take over the business, you don't want to sever any of those connectors, or, or your uh, your business case will be a failure. Very interesting. So in today's age, you're pretty much talking about uh, the point of sale system. Assume you're buying, um, and again, uh, the audience deals with various businesses, but assume someone's buying a bar. So that would be in in this case the point of sale system. Yes, tie the point of sale system to the daily to the daily sales tie the daily sales to the weekly sales and the weekly sales to the monthly sales. Now, you don't have to go through all of the day sales for, for every day of three years. And so, so a good accountant will show you how to do proper testing procedures so that the day sales are, are properly tested and ratified at the point of sale system so that you can then get a level of comfort and trust with the, month, with the monthly system that is tied to 
accused of get punched when a sale is made. Mm-hmm. Once you've ratified that the that the system is properly tied to the keys getting punched, then you can go with the monthly summaries with with comfort because the systems are all integrated. Right, right. So so the EBITDA connect is a, is what you're looking for. Looking for EBITDA connectors is what I call them. EBITDA connectors. When businesses, when business integrations fail, usually you go back and find out that something has happened with the new ownership that has severed one of those connectors. A uh, key person is gone, key practice is gone, something that customers valued has been changed, and it's not the same business anymore. So the same earnings center. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, two more questions, if I may. Um, the number one, you like the business, you love the numbers, you're not a fan of the seller. How do you treat that sale, that purchase? Well, um, I would say <laughs> uh, the, the first, the first, the first uh, challenge, if you can accept it, is uh, take an interest in the seller. Whether you like him or not, take an interest in the seller. Uh, you've got control over what you like and don't like. Sure. Decide to decide to like him for a while, and if if you just can't stomach it, then maybe you better move on. Uh, I've dealt with. Uh, I, honestly, I've had the experience that when I tried to do that, uh, some of the experiences have turned out to be quite emotional. I have to tell you, there's been sellers that I I struggled with, and I found them somewhat repugnant, and I and I struggled with doing the best I could to try to uh, to relate to them. And then I found out uh, uh, sometimes completely unexpectedly that they held me in quite high regard. Okay. And I found that out in a moment that was so emotional that I, I felt actually I felt ashamed of the fact that I had had uh, disliked them in the past because I had uh, I had worked so hard to establish a connection with them that I had succeeded beyond what I expected to, and it was it was emotional for both of us. Wow! Thank you for sharing that. So essentially, your patience has been tested with some sellers, and that's more of a per. That's a subjective problem. That's not, nothing to do with the uh, numbers. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Right. I've, I, as little experience as I've had compared to you, I've, I've, my patience has been tested as well in and, and very little transactions that I've done or I've attempted to do. Um, final question, if I may, Mr. Knopf. <clears throat> What's your advice? Someone has decided to not pursue a career and take on acquiring businesses as a, um, as, as a business, as a way of life, if you will. What's your advice? Uh, well, I'm, uh, for step one, I would start with, uh, uh, I, was, uh, I was an English major and I taught uh, English uh, to college freshmen. Okay. So I'm going to go the old-fashioned way and say, read all the books you can on the subject. Okay. And in today's, in today's world, reading books uh, is augmented by exactly what you and I are doing right now. Also listen to podcasts uh, and attend lectures, sit in on classes, go talk to professors. Make yourself a student of the game and understand uh, understand as much as you can about the subject. And, it, and the path will open for you when you, when you gain enough knowledge. That's great. I didn't know you were an English teacher, by the way. Absolutely. That's great. Um, and that is actually, honestly, that's how I learned this, this game, to your point. And uh, I keep learning it through podcasts and, and reading and so on and so forth. Certainly have a, a list of favorite books. Um, 
I will add one more question and not to overstay my welcome. Um, uh, a couple of books that you recommend. Um, there's a, uh, there's some good books by, uh, um, Tom Peters from the, uh, <clears throat> from the 1990s, uh, uh, Think and Grow Rich, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, In Search of Excellence, Good to Great. Those would all be uh, good books to, to get you started. And okay. then there's a, a number of books that have been written by people just like me that have done this uh, a number of times and tell you their own stories. Uh, I can't think of any of the names of, of those uh, right now, and uh, they're all very entertaining. Okay. I'm not sure that I'm not sure there is as good to learn from because uh, they tell you so much about the specifics of the particular industry that the, that the writer engaged in that uh, they may not be applicable to the next industry. Sure, sure, sure. But if you start off with the more general uh, books as the as the ones that I just described and go from them to the more uh, particular particular uh, stories, uh, it'll sort itself out for you. That's excellent. Mr. Anoff, I sincerely thank you for your time. Busy schedule, lots of units to manage, a lot of people to, 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 to respond to and, and, and send email to, and I, you've taken uh, you know, 45 minutes of your precious time. I can't thank you enough. It's been my pleasure, and uh, good to know you, and I... Uh, uh, look forward to uh, to listening to your podcast in the future. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. This was a really enlightening episode, you guys. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Please, any feedback, let me know. Um, and a very special thank you to Mr. Thomas Knopf. What an incredible talent. Um, this is a business businessman that's been there done that and this is who exactly you want to learn from um you know it's one thing to read the theory but it's it's another to learn it from someone who's been there done that so that said you guys this is alex afondi the acquisition entrepreneur and i look forward to the next episode thank you